Morning. This morning, our text will be Revelation 1, verses 7 and 8, and um, I've entitled the message, Behold, He is Coming, uh, Part 1. <clears throat> so, it's, we're in Revelation, Part 4, but this is Behold, He is Coming, Part 1. And the more I promise that I'm going to go quickly, the slower I go. And this will become uh, apparent, I think, as we begin to look at this um, really powerful uh, pericope of this passage. So uh, join me as we read Revelation 1, verses 7 and 8. Hear now the word of God. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we examine uh, this uh, brief passage, that you would sanctify our hearts and our minds, that we might grasp more deeply the things of God. Help us, Father, to have an accurate understanding of who you are and what you do. Help us, Father, to know your call in our lives in light of the God who has saved us. So we do pray that we would be good learners, good students, that we might grasp grand and holy things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it may be shocking, maybe not, for you to hear that the social, political, religious and moral disorder by which we find ourselves surrounded today in the 21st century is relatively mild compared to the original recipients of the revelation. Religion at that time was so corrupt that Jesus called the ministers children of hell and said that their students were twice as bad as they were. And it would be, I think, near impossible in any survey of history to find political leadership as evil as the leadership during the writing of the Revelation. I, I, I don't want to sound jaded. I tend to think that in order to succeed politically in our current environment, you kind of have to sell out. I feel like most people I see in positions of people of political leadership are sociopaths, but I think the Caesars were psychopaths. I mean, you take another step, and we, when we learn about the things they actually did, the, uh, the one who was probably Caesar during the writing of Revelation, Nero, you know, killed his ex-wife, killed his mother, killed his current wife who was pregnant, and then committed just unbelievable atrocities against the Christians of that era. It is, you are hard-pressed to find another character throughout history as evil as the people who were in leadership at this time, both religious and politically. So the idea that these first century Christians could form some type of political coalition or have any cultural clout or in any way find a smooth path must have seemed to them unthinkable. This idea that they were going to you know, 
carve out some green lights for themselves in light of the environment that they found themselves in would have been almost laughable. One thinks of the rhetorical question, I think it was a rhetorical question by David in Psalm 11, where he says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? I mean, there's this feeling of helplessness. I mean, and I think even in the context of David saying that, it's economic, political, social, religious. The foundation is destroyed, and I, got, I don't know where to go from here. Now, we have concluded, I think, accurately, that the theme of Revelation is the victory of Christ over all evil and oppression. I think that's an accurate way to understand the Revelation. We've also established this, that we, as a kingdom of priests, have a role in God's redemptive plan throughout history, that we are not to be idle in this victory. God has called us to participate in it. But what we're going to see in this passage is that we can count on the providential hand of God as this process unfolds that we've been called to participate, but what we're going to see here is what is God doing in history? What can we count on in terms of the hand of God in the course of human history? Well, Revelation is a relatively difficult book. We all know that. And so I'm committed from time to time to do a quick review in order for us to kind of stay on track. I don't know about you, almost every time I read it, I feel like I'm reading it for the first time. You know, so it might be helpful, and I'm going to try to make these brief, but in order for us to maintain the context of what we're reading, it's good to have this little review, and so I'm going to do that with us right now, because I don't want us to lose the big picture. In verses 1 and 2, we see the order or the chain of the communication, as well as the type of communication. So the order of the communication is from the Father to the Son to the angel to John, and then to, quote, his servants, which would be presumably us. And if we don't number ourselves among his servants, then the revelation is of little use to us. Also, we see the type of communication. He sent and signified it or signify. That verb carries with it this idea that the language that we're going to be seeing in the Revelation is oftentimes figurative language. So the rule we have here is understand the literary genre that we're reading, especially when we get into chapters 4 and on. The language is very figurative. So it's symbolic when symbolic and literal when literal. And right now, we're kind of in the literal portion of the Revelation. What we also learn in these opening passages is that it is the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. If I said it once, I said it a hundred times in the Route 66 series, you know, you, Jesus said, you search the Scriptures, for in them you believe you have eternal life, but a disease which testify of me. The whole Bible is about Jesus. He is the principal character in all of Scripture, and the Revelation is the testimony of Jesus Christ, and we need to read the Revelation with Christ in mind. And you might think, well, isn't it obvious, Pastor Paul? But I don't think it is obvious because I think the revelation has become highly speculative, sensational, and the movies and the books and all these things that are written about it take our minds oftentimes elsewhere. Twice, 
we see in the first three verses, we are told that the events of which John will write, quote, must shortly take place, for the time is near. For all the sensational theologies and speculation revolving around the end of the world, I'm going to submit to you that the most natural reading of the Revelation must bring our thoughts to something that the original readers would have understood to happen soon. If I was a member of one of those seven churches, and I, read, and I received this letter, and I was told this must happen soon, the time is near, I must assume something was about to happen. The idea that I'm going to shoot that off into, th- into thousands of years into the future, I think, is inconsistent with a natural reading of the text. Because I say this, people will, and I've had people ask me, well, Pastor Paul, do you not believe in the second coming? Yes, I believe in the second coming. Yes, yes, amen, and yes. But I'm telling you that I think the easiest reading and the most natural reading of the Revelation will bring our minds to recognize that the lion's share of Revelation must be understood as imminent to the original recipients of the letter. They would get it, and they would think something is about to happen. They would have been the ones at the very first who, having read, heard, and kept the revelation, would be blessed. Now, that is not to say that those who find themselves in similar situations and responding in a similar way would not find blessings as well. You see, what we have to understand about the revelation, and I think it's a big error people make, it's not written just for the first century church, and it's not just written for the last century church. But those are two mistakes. It's, it's not only for them, and it's not only for whoever happens to be alive at the end of history. Like all of Scripture, it is, read for the, it is written for the entire church from the first to second advents of Christ. It, there is something in it for us that goes beyond just us being spectators of events that are going to happen at the end of history or somehow musing at what was happening in the first century. When we get into verses 4 through 6, those verses are rich in terms of the grace and the peace found in and from God, which always must be at the forefront of our minds. You know, John tells us of the triune God. We, we, in just a very short period of time, we learn of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In a very short period there, we also see of the offices of Christ prophet, priest, and king. All of this is brought together almost rapidly. And then we also read of the great love with which we are loved, Christ having washed us of our sins. The drama of Revelation, and I would submit the drama of all of our lives, must ever be entered into in light of the gospel. We must live our lives, and we must read this book in light of the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. But it is the good news of something God has done. It is the good news that he sent his son to die for sinners. So the gospel, is some, the gospel is not something I do. It is something I believe. And that is the means by which God saves sinners. Yet at the same time, we are not called merely to be spectators. We are called to be active participants in what we're going to see unfold in the Revelation. That's why we are called a kingdom of priests. Something that we seldom see in terms of references to Christians. We have marching orders. We have to be ever ready and willing to live a life of servitude, sacrifice, 
and perseverance. Perseverance is going to be another recurring theme we see through the Revelation. He who endures to the end. For the first century church, and many churches really throughout the world today, this may include being faithful unto death. And Jesus says that, be faithful unto death, that you may receive the crown of life. Have you ever asked yourself if you, th- if you would be faithful unto death? I mean, you, you, online, they're the bravest Christians ever, you know. They're like, yeah, I'd be faithful unto death, you know, as they sit behind my Mac Pro. And let me tell you, I don't, I mean, I ask myself that. I, I mean, I have my whole Christian life. I'm like, you know, would I be the faithful one? And I don't know, and I want to take credit for something that I haven't yet done, but I will give you and myself a way to evaluate this. I don't want to in any way think that I would die for Christ if I'm not willing to live for Christ. That's the way you can evaluate whether or not you'd even come close to dying for Christ. Are you willing to live for Christ? Because we are called in the Revelation to be participants in what God is doing throughout the course of history. There is a great promise that we see given to the church that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And I think in Revelation, we see this kind of unfolding, and we'll get into the details of that at another time. But there's always been this great promise that God has given to his covenant people, that he will bless those who bless them, and he will curse those who curse them. Now, it's one of the more misused passages out of Genesis 12 today. That is a promise that God has given to preserve his covenant people, that the church will endure to the end. There is one kingdom that will endure throughout the course of history, and that is Christ's church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And what we're going to see in Revelation is an example of God faithfully preserving his church. Remember the theme. The victory of Christ over all evil, over all opposition. And the victory of Christ becomes your victory if you are in Christ, if you are the body of Christ. Now, I don't want to go too far into this, but what we're going to see in chapters 2 and 3 are letters from Christ to churches telling them to remain being churches and not to allow themselves to be swept by the winds of doctrine or what happens to be popular at the given time. I have to be honest with you, I cringe sometimes when I hear people talk about their Christian faith when I, when I recognize that what they're really talking about is kind of like the, the latest charge given by the left, even as Dan prayed in his prayer, dressed up in Christian language. Because they'll have the same vocabulary, but they don't have the same dictionary. And we need to recognize the lies when we see it, and we need to recognize that as a church, we should not be influenced by the culture in which we live. It should be just the opposite. But the problem here is, in that culture in which they lived, as I pointed out, which was way more oppressive than the culture in which we live, that was happening. And we'll get to that when we get to the seven letters in chapters 2 and 3. Right, well, with that in mind, we're going to look at this verse and like I said, we're going to take a couple of weeks in this verse. I was going to try to get through it, but as I went through it, I'm like, I just can't do it. 
but just so you know that many people on all sides of the eschatological spectrum believe this verse that we just read, really verse 7, to be the principal thematic verse of the entire book of Revelation. In other words, if you were to name the Revelation something other than the Revelation, it would be probably, behold, he is coming. And all the rest of Revelation, especially from chapters 4 to the end of the book, are going to be what that looks like, that he's coming. If verse 19 of chapter 1 is the outline, right? Write the things you've seen, the things that are, and that which will take place after this. That's the outline. This is probably the title of the book of Revelation. What is the Revelation revealing? In a nutshell... Verse 7, this is what the revelation is revealing. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. That's what's being revealed in the revelation. Now, I'm going to throw out a few questions here that we're not going to answer this morning. Well, we're going to answer one. But just so you understand kind of how pregnant this verse is, what is that event? Behold, he is coming. What is that coming? What is, what is it meant by clouds? Why do we read about clouds in the Bible so much? What, 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 is, what do the clouds signify? Who's included in every eye? Every eye will see him. Who are those who pierced him? What is meant, and this is a big one, by all the tribes of the earth? What's meant by that? not all the nations of the earth, it's all the tribes of the earth. There's another word for nations. What does it mean that they will mourn? Is it a good morning or is it a bad morning? Is it blessed who's more, blessed are those who mourn? Or is it, is it the morning of, is it the, tear, are the tears of Esau? Is it the sorrow of Judas? What, what is that mourning that is taking place? Now, we're only going to spend a little time on verse 8. Not because it's unimportant, it is vastly important. We're only going to spend a little time on it because it's not complicated and everybody understands what it means. Verse 8 is simply a reference to the Almighty God. But I will say this, verse 7 needs to be read in such a way to lead us to verse 8. Verse 7 needs to be read in such a way where we say to ourselves, who can do such a thing? Because John goes, now that I said this, let me just bring your focus back to the Almighty God. And finally, and very importantly, how is this ministerial to our hearts? What's, what difference does this make to you? And I have to say, I struggle to not turn this into a seminary class. I don't want this to be a seminary class. I don't want it to be overly academic. You know, I don't mind if Q&A is, if you want to come to Q&A afterward, you can ask whatever you want. But really, what I'm looking for is people to walk out of here with greater resolve and a greater understanding of who God is and what God's call is in their life, rather than people who've kind of been entertained about some type of eschatological speculation. Well, what is that? He's coming. Behold, he is coming. Years ago, I was leading a Bible study before I was a pastor. And I read a passage. And I gave in that Bible study what I thought that passage actually meant. 
But there was a pastor in that Bible study. So I'm not a pastor, and I'm leading the Bible study. There's a pastor, older, more seasoned, wiser than myself. And he kind of humbly raised his hand. And, of course, I called on him. And he said that even though what I had just taught was theologically accurate, he goes, Paul, this, that, what you said was theologically accurate, but this verse doesn't teach that. You understand, you understand the difference here? It's this idea that what I said wasn't wrong. It just, didn't, it just wasn't taught in that verse. It was taught in some other verse, someplace else, but it wasn't taught there. And I think that happens in this verse all the time. The verse we're looking at this morning, I think that what people will say this verse means is theologically accurate, but I think it is exegetically inaccurate. In other words, what they're saying is biblically true, but this is not the place in the Bible where it says it. Now, why is that important? Because if it's not saying that, it's saying something else. And that's what we're missing. We're missing what it actually does say. Now, if you're following it all and your commentators, you got commentators and you're reading and you're trying to follow along, what you'll find is, especially today, that the majority of commentators who are popular today will say, behold, he is coming, is the second coming. In other words, it's the end of history. Or it initiates the millennium which we'll get into at another time. Now, although I think it is theologically accurate to believe in the second coming, I don't think this verse is teaching about the second coming. You understand the difference? People will go, you know, like I said, people will go, oh, Pastor Paul doesn't believe in the second coming. I believe in the second coming. Yes, I believe in the second coming. Yes, amen, literal, physical second coming of Christ. I don't think this verse teaches in the second coming. I'm going to take a few minutes without trying to make this too academic or too much of a seminary class to tell you why. Because I don't want you to just believe it because I say it. I want you to be convinced biblically that it's not the second coming. So that we can kind of go, well, what is it then? Because I think what we find it to be is immensely ministerial. You know, in math, they say... um, Show me your work. You know that in math? I don't want just the right answer. Show me your work. That's what I want to do here a little bit. I could just say, I don't think that's second coming, and then move on. But I think here's what's going to happen with you. You're going to be in a conversation with somebody, and they're going to go, well, why don't you think that's the second coming? And then you're going to forget. Well, you can have my sermon notes are available, or you can take notes. And I'm just going to touch on this. But I think it becomes patently obvious as to why this is not the second coming. I'm only going to mention a couple things. First, as we have already established, the events of which John writes must shortly take place for the time is near. I can't tell you how important that is. Friends, I think it, uh, there's, something, there's something mystifying about the fact that we are told at the very beginning of this book numerous times throughout the book of the time frame of what is going to take place, and yet everybody thinks it's not going to happen for thousands of years. You know, I don't want to be mean-spirited or overly critical, but if you read your Bible in such a way that the time is near means minimum two millennia, 
then you can make your Bible mean anything you want it to mean. It's just the opposite of the time is near. These people have received this letter from John because of the oppression and the difficulty of the situation they're in. John is saying something is about to happen. And then just a couple of verses later, he gets into the heart of what's about to happen. Behold, he is coming. It would be an exegetical non sequitur to somehow push that out into thousands and thousands of years in the future. We must consider the original audience. How would they have understood what John was writing about? So first and foremost, and I think almost indisputably, when you have that statement that behold he is coming within a few verses of the time is near, the idea that this is a second coming, I think is exegetically, and you know what I mean by exegetically, it's like Bible interpretation. It's exegetically unsound to draw that conclusion. Second, it turns the revelation into an almost entirely ethereal epistle. And what I mean by that is the popular, most, most popular view today has the entire church gone after chapter 4. And we're just kind of watching from heaven everything that's happening in Revelation take place. So the marching orders, we don't have marching orders. We're gone. We've been raptured. And I, we, you know, we don't, we'll get into it when the time comes. And I think it'll become more apparent as we study on. But the revelation is not merely telling us that heaven awaits us. As important as that is. I mean, that's critical, right? I'm not downplaying the value of that. But that is not what we're reading in the revelation. The revelation is addressing the impact of Christ upon human history. Can you see what a big difference that is? I think a quote from Rush Dooney might help us. And I think it is, I think, at least it's my experience, that this quote, I think, really typifies the current mentality when it comes to end times. He wrote, to deny the triumph of Christ in time. And just so you know what he meant by in time, what he meant was the triumph isn't ethereal, it's in history. It it, uh, extends into space. It extends into time. It is something that we experience. So when he says that, he's talking about the way it unfolds in the course of human history. To deny the triumph of Christ in time is to undercut the validity of the resurrection and its implications for history. It is to reduce Christianity to any otherworldly cult and to make a retreat from life the essence of faith. In other words... Let's just get people saved and get them raptured and get out. That is not the call in Revelation. And I know a lot of people are like going, you know, the fact that Jesus may come soon should motivate us to evangelize. And if that motivates you to evangelize, good, and go for it. But keep this in mind. Every generation of Christian from the beginning of the church, of the New Covenant Church, thought they were, there were people who thought they were living in the last days, and every last single one of them have been wrong. And I'm going to to hazard a guess here that none of us in this room are going to experience the second coming before we die. But we will all die. And I think that is sufficient motivation for evangelizing. So I think it's just a matter of kind of recognizing 
that it's not our job to retreat. It's our job to advance. The gates of hell will not prevail. Who's on the defense? The church or the gates of hell? According to that passage, it's the, it's the gates of hell that are coming down as a result of the church. And what the church seems to be doing today is kind of holding our gates while the, the devil and death come into the church. That's why in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus is going to go, you've got to remain the church. I think setting our entire focus on the rapture or the end of the world is in stark conflict with the proclamation and revelation of Christ's victory over all evil in history. We'll get to this in more detail in chapter 11, but how else we can understand this? Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. What are you you going to do with that? Keep in mind, it's the kingdoms of this world that have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Jesus has paid the price to redeem all of history. The world belongs to him. He bought it back. And it is our job to subdue that which belongs to him, not to, do, not to retreat. Third and finally for now, just so you understand, there are many references in the Revelation and really through all the New Testament where we hear about Jesus coming that are clearly not the second coming. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Jesus warns the church at Ephesus in 2.5 of Revelation. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do your first works, or else I will come to you quickly. By the way, it's the same Greek verb. I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That church had to understand that Jesus was saying, behold, I'm coming. But clearly not a reference to the second coming. To the church at Philadelphia, he wrote this in chapter chapter 3, verse 11. Behold, same verb, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Again, in Laodicea, a very popular verse out of Revelation that that when we get there, I'm going to argue is oftentimes misused today. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come into him, same verb, and dine with him and he with me. Friends, these are just a few examples of the coming of Christ that are not the second coming of Christ. But let us realize this. Any coming of Christ should teach us a bit of the second coming of Christ. Just like any judgment of God in history should teach us a little bit about God's eternal judgment. We know this, when Jesus comes throughout the course of history, it's good news for some people and bad news for other people. That's the way it's going to be at the second coming. It's going to be good news for some people and bad news for other people. The judgments of God through history, for example, Sodom and Gomorrah, should teach us a little bit about God's eternal judgment. So it's not as if these things don't tell me anything about the second coming. But the fact that I can learn about the second coming through the periodic comings of Christ don't make those two things the same event. And by the way, we're not going to get into it this morning, there was a specific coming that 
Revelation is talking about in terms of the church being rescued from the oppression of the people I was just talking about, and we'll get to that at another time. All this to say, and um, I think uh, G.K. Beale, who's, I think, a very good theologian, and I don't agree with him on everything, but I think he's right here, says it this way. Furthermore, Christ's coming in the letters in chapters 2 and 3 appears to be his conditional visitation in judgment of the churches, though an allusion to the second coming could be included. You see what he's saying there? He's like, these comings, that's not the second coming, but you learn about the second coming. And then he says this specifically about the verse we're looking at this morning. Therefore, Christ's coming in 1-7, that's the verse we're looking at this morning, and elsewhere in the apocalypse is understood better as a process occurring throughout history. This idea that Christ comes into the very history he created. And, and again, there is a specific event that we'll get into in terms of well, what was going to happen then, but I think that we can recognize that Jesus is no less king of kings now than he was then. And Jesus' promise to the church endures till the end of time. And we need to recognize that when we find ourselves tempted to follow you know, the, the, the spirit of the age and allow the spirit of the age to begin to dictate who we are, what we believe, and where we're going to go. We need to hold fast to that faith once for all delivered to the saints. Again, all this, I think, agrees with Rush Dooney, who made the statement, this Christ comes continually in the clouds of judgment over history. This brings us to all the talk of clouds, which we're not going to get into this morning. But I, I have to say, just ministerially, I think we should all be comforted as with the heavily persecuted church that we serve a Savior who frequents the history of fallen man. We're not deists. We don't believe that God wound up the clock of history and and it's just letting it tick, tick away as some disinterested party. That the rulers of the earth need to recognize who they are taking rank against when they take rank against the Lord and his anointed. They need to understand that. We need to understand that. Lest we're tempted to jump ship and get on board with who seems to be winning. Don't you marvel sometimes, talking about politicians, who just flip-flop left and right on such major issues? I think to myself, hey, I get it if you have gotten new wisdom and you've changed your mind. I've changed my mind. Hopefully you've changed your mind. If you haven't changed your mind on some things, then you're not growing at all. But when people who are mature people in positions of leadership just automatically shift gears based upon some poll that was taken in terms of whether or not they're going to get elected. And, and you know what? That's human nature, and we can't play that game. You need to be willing to be the one person who holds fast. Let God be true, and every man a liar. It's easier said than done. But it's almost like the true metal of our church is being tested right now by how many people are willing to continue to persevere in the faith. We have a God who's entered history 
first and foremost through his son, and the thing we call the incarnation, that the eternal son of God became flesh and he dwelt among us to save us from our sins. So he's entered history for that. That is the apex. That is the acme of the message. Without that message, none of this means anything. That God loved us so much that he he prepared a body for his son, sent him into human history, which the son lovingly went, joyfully went, and rescued you and me from the wrath of God. But also, he enters history in his providential hand in order to assure this promise we see throughout the course of the Old Testament, and I think reiterated in the New Testament, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Over and against the popular view that it's God's plan for things to get worse and worse and worse and worse, which I think is a misreading of the Revelation. The plan of God is just the opposite, that the righteousness of God and the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. I mean, as a, as a coach, as an athlete, but as, especially as a coach, and I don't really play this game too much, but I know this, if my team is convinced before the game begins that we're going to lose, we're probably going to lose. And I don't want to get overly psychological about this. But I think that a misreading of this has convinced generations of Christians that it's God's plan for the church to wax cold and for things to just get demonstrably worse throughout the course of history. That's a mistake. That's a mistake. And what we're going to see in the Revelation is just the opposite. Friends, I know how it feels. I mean, we fret when we see those, especially in political power, who have no regard for man or God, making decisions that feel so oppressive and we feel so helpless. At the time of the writing of Revelation, as I said, as well as many other places throughout the world today, here's the thing about people in positions of leadership. Power, power is... It's a powerful thing. And people in power will try to snuff out all opposition. Like I said, we saw, that, we saw that with Nero. We saw that with Caligula. We saw that with the early, but we also saw it with Lenin and Stalin. That when, when they found that people close to them were a threat to their power, close friends, confidence, confidants, they would have them snuffed out. So, so we feel that sometimes. I think of my dear brothers and sisters in China where I've had the opportunity to teach. Every one of them had been in labor camps. They were in labor camps because when they were part of the government three-self church, they began writing sermons. And let me tell you a little bit about the persecution of the church. Because the world, and especially people in positions of political power, they don't care if you have a quiet time. They don't care if you're reading your Bible. They don't care if you're feeding the hungry. They don't care if you love one another. You know what they don't want? They don't want you to declare that there is a king of kings. They don't want you to say that there is somebody to whom the rulers of China should bow. And when they start writing that and preaching that, they are removed from the pulpits. They begin the underground church. And if they keep preaching that, they get thrown into labor camps. We're a little uncomfortable because we feel like our liberties are being a little infringed upon. They're kind of moving in the opposite direction. They're they're kind of moving going, Lord, convert them, change them, change the world. You know, they're moving in a direction 
They have been called to be faithful, and they've been faithful. Well, they do have this kind of question, though. When they, you know, and I've heard it, you know, because they'll be hearing this negative eschatology. And they'll be like, well, Pastor Paul, what chance do we have of this aggressive, totalitarian, communistic, atheistic regime? There's a billion of them. What chance do we have? Well, I'm going to tell you, when we read Revelation, that question is going to get turned on its head. What we learn when we read the Revelation is that it is the atheistic, oppressive communist who has no chance. What, we, what we'll learn, and you can evaluate whether or not you're numbered among these people, is that the nominal, non-God-fearing, quasi-Christian who honors God with their lips, but whose heart is far away, that person has no chance. The person who's decided, you know what, I'm going to go with the majority here, like those seven churches were in fear of doing. Those are the ones who have no chance. How do we know who they are? How do we know who those people are? You know, Jesus tells us how we know these people are who have undue influence in guiding us down a bad road because they teach the doctrines of man as if they are the commandments of God. Ultimately, they are unsound in their instruction. Do you, do you even know a lie when you hear one? Because sometimes I, I'll be talking to my Christian friends and I'll hear him say something, and I don't want to be overly critical or judgmental, and I'm sure i got to ferret it out in myself, that I have been so influenced by the culture in which I live that I've just taken an ungodly, worldly, oftentimes Marxist doctrine and have made it Christian. And I, thankfully, I've had people in my life who had the courage to call me out, like this pastor in the Bible study, because that wasn't the only time he did that with me. No, you don't understand, brother, what you're saying here is unbiblical. I'm like, how's that unbiblical? We need to be good students. We need to be wise. There is a promise in the second psalm that the rebellious and oppressive kings and judges of the earth will perish in their evil and their recalcitrant ways. Right? I mean, why do the heathen rage? Why do they plot? You know the verse? What do they plot? A vain thing. In other words, they plot it. But it's not going to happen. It's vain. Their efforts are in vain. And we are taught there that God has made a promise. Ask of me and I will give you the kingdoms of the earth as your inheritance. As Dr. Bonson said, do we think Jesus didn't ask? And what do we read there? That the kings of the earth, the judges... They are to bow the knee to Christ. They are to kiss the Son, lest they perish. Now, this isn't just some kind of power move on behalf of God. Like I said last week, as if he was some Roman or Greek deity who's going to want to have got insecurities that you need to satisfy. No, it is recognizing that we serve an omnibenevolent, all-good God. And if God is not the one to whom we bow the knee, then we're going to bow the knee to somebody else. And when we start bowing the knee to somebody else and they receive that worship, we are going to find ourselves in the worst condition imaginable. But God has promised that he has sent his son not only at 
the incarnation, but through the course of history to depose those who take rank against the Lord's anointed. And that's what we read of in the book of Revelation. He comes with clouds. And next week we'll talk about what that even means. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would recognize your great plan in history and that we would be faithful stewards of the treasures that you've given to us, first and foremost, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But let us, Father, remember the entirety of the Great Commission, that as disciples are made, that we are called to teach them to observe all that you have commanded. For in you, righteousness, goodness, and holiness dwells. In Christ are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Help us to be faithful stewards of such great things that your name might be glorified throughout the entire earth and that the kingdoms of this world truly are the kingdoms of our Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.